you know, I have over the years had to have read a lot. I like to read. And I've learned several lessons about reading, how to read to get the most out of what the author is trying to communicate. And uh, probably the most important lesson that, that I read is you have to start at the beginning. And yeah, very profound, right? And then you, this is going to be a good one, I can tell. And then you read each chronological each chapter in chronological order. Yeah, and if you do that, you will end up with hopefully the, the understanding that what the author was trying to communicate. Does that make sense? Right? You probably wouldn't start reading a book at chapter 17 and then go to chapter 4 and then go to 41, 42, just a little bit out of those chapters. And then you would go to the epilogue and then you come back to 1 and then you do chapter 9 and then say, this is a stupid book. It doesn't make any sense. I can't figure out what they're trying to say. Well, of course you can't. Duh, because you didn't start at the beginning. How often do we do this with the Bible, right? We read a little bit here, and a little bit here, and a little bit there, and a little bit there. And then we say, oh, this makes no sense. I don't know what it's all about. We treat the Bible like Newsweek magazine or something. You know, it's all under one cover, but a bunch of articles that are not really related to each other. Well, humanly speaking, the Bible is 66 different books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages. Um, written by fishermen to kings. So humanly speaking, yeah, there's a bit of, of diversity there. But the, the unity is incredible because that we believe the Bible is inspired by God. And ultimately, it's God's book. It's a book. There's a story. There's one plot that goes through it. There's main characters. There's an antagonist and a protagonist. There's our hero with this strange kind of ending that happens. It's, it's, it's a book. Now, the, the, the story about the birth of Jesus, it's little little over two-thirds of the way through the book. The story's over two-thirds of the way done, and then we get to the birth of Jesus, and so we open that up and we read about the birth of Jesus, and maybe it was fun and exciting and wonderful, but if we don't understand the beginning, we're never going to really understand the birth of Jesus. Now, I'm going to make a proposition today. I would propose that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis act as a prologue to the rest of the Bible. The real story starts in chapter 12, and those first 11 chapters are the prologue. Now, there's lots of stories in there, but you've got to know this. Even though it comprises thousands and thousands of years, those first 11, 11 chapters... God, in his sovereignty, picked only a few stories to put in there. And they're all interrelated because there's one message that God wants you and I to know. And if we don't know that message, we'll never know why Jesus had to come. Now, let me shift gears. Not really, but you're going to think so for just a moment. My favorite Christmas cartoon is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Right? It was on the other night. Did you see that? I, uh, yeah, it, not, not the Jim Carrey version, but the cartoon one. You know, they, you know this, if you don't know the story, you, know, you, you need to know the story. Because this is like a cultural classic. The Grinch is hanging out on Mount Crumpet. And, and he, he really does not like the Who's down in Whoville. And, and especially this time of year, Christmas. Because he knows that what's going to happen at Christmas. They're going to get all their presents. And they're going to they're be making all this noise, noise, noise. And they're going to be enjoying and singing and laughing. And then they're going to have their feast. And they're going to really be responding with such wonder. And then they're all going to come out and they're going to sing their Who Christmas carols. And it's just driving them crazy. So he says, I've got to stop it. So he comes up with this plan. 
He's going to dress up like the old gentleman himself. And on Christmas Eve, he sneaks into Whoville while the Who's are all asleep. And he steals all their stuff. He takes their Christmas trees and their ornaments and their Jew janglers and their bow danglers and whatever else that they've got. He takes their feast. He takes the roast beast. And he says, you know what? This is going to be great because in the morning when they wake up, they're going to be so sad. They're all going to be crying. And so he takes all their stuff up back up Mount Crumpet. Crumpet. And then he stops when he realizes this is about the time they're going to be waking up. So he comes to the precipice and he looks down and he listens. And the who's, what happens to the who's? They come out, but they're not angry, right? They're not sad. They're singing. They're singing their who Christmas carol. And the Grinch, you can't believe what he's hearing. And as we, if, you, if you watch this, you know when they start singing their da, who, da, re, you know, you want to sing along with them. And you're going, yes, yes, all the Grinches in the world. This will show you. And you put the kids in bed and you sit down just happy to be part of the human race. And you get your, your cup of coffee or your, whatever, your tea. And you're thinking on the, this, you're basking in the glow. And then you start looking at your own life thinking, hey, wait a minute. As you look at you and what's going on in your life and you look at Dr. Seuss's theology, you realize that they really don't mesh. Before the coffee's cold in the cup, you realize you've been lied to. And you start to get ticked off about this a little bit because you know reality. You know if that really happened, that part about the who's coming out and singing and stuff when their stuff has been lifted, that's the fakiest part of the whole thing. And actually, they wouldn't come out singing. They'd come out swinging, wouldn't they? They'd come out cursing. They'd come out looking for lawyers. And they would come out blaming each other for not locking the door. They'd be upset. And you think, man, what I do? And as you look in the mirror, you know that you probably have a little bit of Grinch in you, right? Maybe uh, you've said over and over again, I'm going to fix this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm gonna be, and you can't be okay. Or maybe you do gain victory and you're basking in the glow of your victory, but then you notice in the shadows, pride is, is lurking with that devilish smile on his face. And you realize that even when I succeed, I fail. Or maybe you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. That's not ever happened. Has it? And suddenly you lose that sanctification and venomous words and, and foam from the mouth and you're banging in, in silent treatment manipulation, whatever comes out. And you realize, where did that come from? And you go, how come? I want to do good. We want to. But it's like I can't control it. It's like the doctor, the Mr. Hyde thing is stronger than the Dr. Jekyll thing. I can't, I can't control it. What's wrong with me? That answer is found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that answer is the answer as to why Jesus had to come down to this earth. So if you got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis? Page one in the pew, Bible in front of you. We're going to start right at the beginning. Page one, Genesis, chapter one. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to fly over 30,000 foot level of Genesis chapter one through 11. We're going to see six different snapshots uh, of Genesis one through 11. And what we're going to try to do is get that message. What is God trying to communicate here? Because again, if we can get that message down, we understand the meaning of the, the season, why Jesus had to come. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
in our likeness. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we're Trinitarian. We believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because of the plural pronouns. God's not talking to angels here. He's talking amongst himself. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over the earth and all the creatures that move along the ground. So, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, God has been creating last five days, and he made everything, you know, the, the, the trees and the stars and, and, and whole nine yards. And, and the angels are probably watching him, and they're going, yeah, they're cheering him on. Yeah, God, that was a cool one. Oh, look at that thing. That was pretty funny. And, and they were just like, God, make something with stripes. Can you make something with stripes? <laughs> Whoa, you <laughs> did it. Check it out. And then God, God says, I got one. Last act of creation up my sleeve. This is my magnum opus. This is, this is the grand finale. And so the angels are, whoa, what's going to happen here? And then, you know, man and woman. And the angels are kind of looking at him going, huh. Is there anything else? No, no, that's it. Well, they're not the biggest. Not the goofiest looking ones. I'm pretty good. But I, I, yeah, that's they're pretty good, God. And then God does this. He takes a piece of himself. And he goes to Adam and Eve. And he makes them in his image. And the angels are floored. What are the, how do these two rate? I mean, I mean the, the trees, giant squares, big, magnificent. They're not made in God's image. The stars, powerful, right? And they're, 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 and they're light and they're heat and they're huge, but they're not made in God's image. The, 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 the being made in God's image is, is not an issue of intelligence. We're told that the dolphin might be more intelligent than mankind. Well, that's fine, but the dolphin's not made in God's image. It's not, being made in God's image is not a body. Because orangutans might have two legs and two arms, but orangutans are not created in the image of God. Just what does it mean to be in the image of God? God doesn't have a body, John chapter 4. Whatever else it may mean, I believe it's this, this morality. It's being able to have relationship with God. It's, it's reflecting part of God. It's having God breathed into them. It's uh, being, and don't take me wrong, it's... it's being a, a, a son, a child of God. Angels aren't even there. And so they're looking at these guys going, wow. Uh, we are not. Uh, pond scum gone berserk. You know, we are created in the image of God. Your life was created for significance beyond just doing the best you can for a handful of years and then dying. It's a little bit more significant than that. We were created in the image of God. And you might say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm looking at myself, I'm looking at this world, and if this is the best God can do, it's a pretty small God. Because the second snapshot is man chooses and the man loses. Chapter 2, verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God lets him know. Don't, don't test me on this one. Judgment will follow sin. It just always does. Chapter 3, it says, then, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. What is die? You'll not surely die, the servant said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. A couple things here. First of all, we know that Eve was not a stereotypical Western blonde type, clueless, brainless, irrational, ditzy sort. Eve had more intelligence than anybody who would follow her. More pure wisdom than all of your Nobel Prize winners together. Eve was incredibly intelligent. She knew what was going on here. Uh, Likewise, Satan noticed his strategy. Real important because he uses his strategy with us. Same strategy. Did he say, oh, Eve, Eve, you misunderstood God. He he didn't mean to. See, this is what he meant. Oh, he knows that Eve knows. He doesn't go after that. He goes after the motivation, doesn't he? Why do you think God really said that, Eve? I mean, really. I mean, have you ever seen death before, Eve? What's death? You know, Eve, God has given you all this other pathetic fruit in the garden. But why do you think the very best one he won't let you have? See, God knows this is God fruit. Eve, you look good. She says, well, yeah, I'm I'm perfect. No, 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 don't get carried away, Eve, because you're not God. She'll say, well, yeah, no, I guess I'm not. You can be, though, Eve. Take the fruit. You don't need someone else to tell you what to do. You decide what is good and not good. You, you be the one to judge between evil and right. You make that decision yourself. You be God, Eve. And she says, I think I will. And so she falls. Now here's, here's the, the principle, real important principle. And that is this. Sin equals judgment. Always. I don't have this on the screen, but listen to this. Chapter still 3, verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, well, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, this this strategy that Satan used, and it worked. How often does this work with us, too, right? I mean, we don't usually disobey God because we don't know. Usually we know. But we question God's motivation. Yeah, God said no, but the way we look at this fruit, it's desirable to make us wise. It's going to make us look good. It's going to be fun. By the way, is is sin fun? Have you all ever sinned? (laughs) Sin fun? Yes, usually it's fun. The, The author of Hebrews says that sin is enjoyable for a season. Yes, if it's not fun, who's going to do it? Yeah, yes, it's fun, it's pleasurable, it may even help you get ahead momentarily. Yeah, yes, it's good, it's fun, it's wonderful. But sin always comes with judgment, always. 
And if you read through the text here, what's going to happen? Is Adam and Eve are going to get kicked out of the garden. Now, I believe in a literal Garden of Eden, but, but it represents also relationship with God. And they're kicked out. And there's a wall around it. And now there's one gate in. And God himself places a, a bouncer person, a flaming angel with a sword, right at the gate. And, and what it lets us know is multiple things. First of all, it, says, it talks about him being, them being naked. If you think Exodus 34, I've heard lots of ideas on this one. Here's one I like the best, though. Exodus 34, Moses goes up on the mountain. He hangs out with God. He talks with God. He comes down from the mountain. And because he was face-to-face with God, his face, it glowed. Literally glowed, with the, with, radiated with, with the glory of God. So much so that Moses had to put a veil over it so people could look at him. I wonder... If Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they literally radiated the glory of God. And then when they sinned, it was like someone hit the switch, you know, oh, you know, we're in trouble now. Let's see, what we can, maybe we can hide this so God doesn't notice. Well, that didn't work, right? It was all done. So God kicks them out. Several things are destroyed. And by the way, that, the word death means, means separation. Uh, their relationship with God is destroyed. They are separated from God. I don't care how great your relationship with God is right now. It was never as good as Adam and Eve's initially was. It will never be as good on this earth as it will be one day when we see him face to face. Relationship with, with God has been destroyed. Relationship with, with uh, others has been destroyed. Suddenly you find Adam and Eve doing what? pointing at each other, right? Accusing. That woman you gave me. They start yelling at each other, accusing each other. Accusations, misunderstandings, all, all relational issues. Marriage and otherwise. It's from sign of the fall. Also, their relationship with nature is destroyed. When they were in the garden, there was harmony with nature. But as soon as they get out, what does God say to Adam? One of the first things he says is, you're in deep weeds, he says. From this point on, all of your work will will be done through pulling of weeds. In other words, you're going to have to fight nature, Adam, if you're going to survive. And this is what we do, don't we? This is what our doctors are all about. In all of our medical world, we're fighting the viruses and the bacteria. We have to be careful about about making sure that we have the right shelter and, and clothing. We need to fight nature on one level in order to survive. Also, our relationship with with ourself. I think if you follow the text, there's depression and confusion and emotional pain. It uh, goes, goes back to the fall. It's, it's about the fall. And the principle is huge. And this is the principle we're going to see over and over again in these first 11 chapters. Sin always equals judgment. Always, always, always. Now, I can imagine... The Garden of Eden is still there. And Cain and Abel are being raised by Adam and Eve, and they walk by once in a while, and they see through the, the, the flaming angel guy, and they see into the garden, and perhaps they see God walking around. I don't know, but they might say, Dad, will you check this out? Look in there. Oh, man, it looks incredible in there. Will you just look at that? And Adam could tell him some stories. He says, Sons, let me tell you, your mom and I used to live in there, and we used to walk around with God. And see those big old animals? We, we, they weren't afraid of us or us. And we were friends. It was great. We never argued. It was a wonderful thing. And they'd say, well, Dad, what happened? Well, God told us one thing that we weren't supposed to do, but we didn't believe him. He said if we did it, bad things were going to happen. We didn't believe him. 
We thought we knew more than he did. So boys, let me, let me tell you, please, don't sin. When God says something, trust him. Just trust him. Something, sometimes things inside you will say he's wrong. Don't listen to that. Trust God. Don't sin. And you think that Cain and Abel would say, man, we are never going to sin. We are never going to sin. We're not going to repeat that. We're not sinning. We're not sinning. But chapter 4, we know what happens. Next snapshot. Man continues to sin. Cain and Abel had offered sacrifices to God, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's, and we're not going to get into all that right now. But either way, made Cain angry. Cain got jealous of his brother. Cain started thinking mean things about his brother. Not that you'd ever think mean things about somebody, but, but Cain was doing that, and God noticed that God came down. In chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. God comes to Cain and says, You're at the crossroads, buddy. Listen to me. And God, the way he explains it and pictures sin here, it's almost like sin has got this power in and of itself. Sin desires to have you. It's just waiting to attack you. Gain, you're at a very crucial place here. God's saying, don't blow it. Now, I'm thinking that if God came to me and said, hey, Harris, I know what you're thinking. Don't even go down this road. I'd think I'd say, well, okay, okay, I was caught. Okay, I won't go. But what happens the very next verse? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. You continue on in the chapter, what's going to happen is God comes to Cain and banishes him. He's sent off on his own. He and his wife and little family, however many they've got, are gone. They'll never see Adam and Eve and all of his other brothers and sisters and cousins ever. They're gone. They're gone. And you would think that night at the dinner table, Adam and Eve and, and are sitting there and they have several open chairs now. Abel is dead. Now they understand what death is. Uh, he's not responsive. He's unconscious. I guess this is death. Uh, Cain is gone. Cain's wife is gone. Any children they have, they're gone. Now, if you're a parent who's lost a child, maybe you know some of the pain that Adam and Eve are feeling here. And you think they would say, listen, guys, please don't sin. Please, sin is awful. We know personally, but again, would you please just not sin? When God says, listen to him, obey, don't sin. And then down the road, when you got Cain and his, his family, and his kids might be saying, hey, Dad, why, why can't we go back and see Grandma and Grandpa? No, ever again you can't go back and see Grandma. Can we go play with your cousins? No, never again. Guys, in my passion, I blew it. God told me, and I knew better, please don't sin. And you would think, they would say, man, if that's the result, we're never going to sin again. We're not, we're, we are not sinning. We're done with sin. You'd think that, right? Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Sin goes universal. It goes public. IPOs and everybody buys it, right? You can't help but buy it. This is what, what is. Chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw how great 
Look at this. Listen to the superlatives added up here. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You go, what happened? Don't these people know? That sin always equals judgment. I'm guessing that they've been able to do it for quite some time and get away with it that they're thinking, okay, not always. Verse 7, it says, So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah... Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 6, 7, and 8. Noah's Ark. We know the story. Noah's Ark. We've got Noah's Ark puzzles and Noah's Ark toys and our kids' things. And Noah's Ark pajamas and Noah's Ark wallpaper. And, but would you have wallpaper in your kids' room of Auschwitz? Would you have toys of the Holocaust? Would you have pajamas depicting human suffering? This story of Noah's Ark, and we should teach it to our kids but it is probably the most adult story in the Bible. We cannot, we cannot coat this with cartoons and make it seem like this is just a nice thing. This is one of the worst forms of judgment we find in all of of the Bible. I mean, can you imagine? No, and he gets this whole family in the ark. And then God, it says, after the animals are in, the God closes the door. And it's a good thing God closed the door. Noah didn't have power here at this point. And it starts raining. And all of a sudden, maybe there's some knocking on the door. Whoa, Noah, Noah, I know you can hear me. Yeah, I know we were joking about you building. We're just fooling, man. We're just like, hey, will you open the door and let us in? It's getting a little bit high out here. We, we need in. And he's not able to let him in. And they start banging a little bit more. And then as the boat starts to rock a little bit, they hear, please, Noah, forget us. But, but five-year-old Johnny, you like Johnny, will you let Johnny in? And Noah can't. His family's going to be sitting there pulling their hair out as they're listening to the screams. And they're recognizing between themselves, oh man, sin always equals judgment. Y'all, God is serious about this. Let's never, let's put our hands, we are never going to sin again, ever, ever. We're not going to sin. We're not. And you would think that this pact would, would work. These guys have seen, now Adam and Eve, maybe they never really saw death. Maybe they just really, it was all theoretical for them. They didn't really know. But now... God's wiping out everything and starting all over with the most righteous family in the world. All right, we're going to see what happens. And what do you think happens? Well, man continues to sin. Chapter 9, it spreads. Let me paraphrase this one for you. They come out of the ark. We don't know exactly how much time they're out. Noah plants a vineyard though and gets the grapes, makes some wine, gets drunk, goes into his tent naked. So far, no sin with this. But his son Ham follows him into the tent. And we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what Ham did, but we do know it was horrific. It was some sort of sin that Ham knew was a sin. Perhaps, probably, the commentators think some sexual thing. Uh, But he came out boasting about what he did. Well, God steps in because sin always equals judgment. Ham is banished with his, just like Ham, we've been down this road before, haven't we? With Cain, he's banished with his wife and kids. Banished. 
And you would think that night, wouldn't you think that night, there's around the, the dinner table, and no one, and their friends, are, they're, 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 his boy is gone, and all of their grandchildren with that family, they're gone, and he's saying, listen, listen, people, didn't we just, with the flood, and we, we know that there is judgment, don't sin, let's not sin. You'd think the family would say, we're never going to sin. And you think down the road, with Ham's family, Dad, can we go see Grandma and Grandpa? No. Can we go play with their cousins? You can't. Because it's all done. Because I sinned. Guys, please don't sin. You think they would say, we're never going to sin. But what happens? Sin can't be avoided, can it? Chapter 11. And I don't think I've got this one on the screen. Beginning in verse 1, though, it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Uh, Then they said, Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, is probably a ziggurat, so that we may make a name for ourselves. That, that phrase, may make a name for ourselves, it's very similar to what Eve said in the garden, so that you, Eve, could be God. These guys were saying, we don't need God. We're going to set ourselves up as God. And if you follow the chapter, what happens is sin always equals judgment, Right? God comes. He divides the people with language. One of the reasons why we don't have one world language today, that we can't communicate as easily, is it's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of judgment. Sin always equals judgment. So this is how chapter 11 is going to end. This is terrible. You know, we, we tried. These guys tried their best. We wiped them everything out and started all over again. Can't blame Satan for showing up and tempting them this time. He was Satan wasn't even in there, and they still continued to. They continued to sin. They just continued to sin. There's some applications or some observations out of these first eleven chapters. First one is, you have been created glorious. Let's not forget that we were created to have relationship with God. Yet you and I both know that the vast majority of people in this world do not have that. But that's what we were created to have. Second thing to know is that we're fallen, we're, we're broken. That image of God, it's still there, it's just warped out. It, it's, it's twisted. Uh, sin is in our DNA. We don't, we don't become sinners when we sin. Like everyone starts off pure and then they sin somewhere along the line and they become sinners. It's in our spiritual DNA. We sin because we're sinners. Uh, sin is to us what... what Spots are to the, the leopard. You know, we don't just decide, well, I'm just not going to be that. I can't decide, well, I'm just not going to be Scottish anymore. Well, you know, you don't decide that. It's who you are. Try to act different. That's fine, but it's who you are. But Paul said it this way. The Apostle Paul in Romans. And I'm guessing that Paul was a pretty godly guy. But he said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I've got something inside me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That's in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do good, but I can't carry it out. For what I want to do is not the good. 
For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No. The evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We're all of us. Say that all have sinned. All of us. Third thing. Sin always equals judgment. Always, always, always. Sometimes there's a gap between the actual sin and the judgment, but it always equals judgment. Now, do you see the problem here? Do you see this? We all are sinners. We all have sin. This is what we do. We can do it well. This is who we are. And sin always equals judgment. Always, always, always. It's hopeless. We can't fix it. We can try. We can't fix it. It's not an issue of you doing more good things because you know as well as I do, sooner or later you're going to do something bad again. We can't fix it. And chapter 11 ends. And then in chapter 12, God shows up on the front porch of this guy named Abraham. He says, Abraham, mankind can't fix their problem. They are stuck irreversibly. They are in a mess. They can't fix this. There's nothing in the world that can fix this. But I'm not of the world. And I've got a plan. And so he makes certain promises to Abraham. One is, Abraham, one day, through you, all the nations of the world, the, the uh, aborigine people in New Guinea, the, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Now, earlier, chapter 3, verse 15, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God comes to them and says, Eve, one day you're going to have a boy. And that boy will crush all of the, the, the works of Satan. The rest of the Bible from this point on, Genesis 12 on, he's revealing more and more and more about who this person is, is what he's going to look like, what he's going to do. When you get to Isaiah 53, he make, God makes it very clear that, that you and I are under judgment, but this one coming is going to take our judgment. Because sin has to be judged. God can't wink at it. And so he's going to. This one coming is going to take our judgment. It's our only hope. And then an angel comes to Mary and says, It's time. It's time for him to come. Jesus grows up. And when Jesus says, Listen, y'all, it's time for me to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there. People try to, to put the brakes on him. Whoa, not you. And what does he say? He said, No, it's for this reason that I came. You don't understand. It's for, it's for this reason that I came. And when Jesus hung on the cross, for myself, for anybody who would put faith in him, God the Father took your judgment, my judgment, and put it on the back of Jesus so that he bore our judgment. Is that incredible or what? So that the sin that needs to be judged is taken care of. Taking care of this, we partake in communion. This is perfect because that's what this represents. We do this monthly basis, but you've got the bread, which is Jesus' body that was broken in judgment. It should be your body broken in mine. And the cup that represents Jesus' blood that was shed in judgment. Your judgment. He didn't need to die. He was only perfect uh, for you and for myself. Now, maybe, listen. As we start this Christmas season, maybe you've come to church a long time and you've taken communion a million times, but you still have never given your life to Christ. 
You think, man, I've got to try harder, I've got to do good, I've got to do some good church things, not bad things to do, and I'm going to take communion and show God that I, I like them. That's, that's wonderful, fine. But you know as well as I do, that doesn't change the Grinch thing. Bottom line is, sin needs to be judged. Sin always comes with judgment, and that's what this represents. And so the bottom line is, you have to come to the foot of the cross, you have to come to Christ, you can do it right where you sit today. Say, thank you for bearing my judgment. I never understood this before. I, I, I give my life to you. I, I don't want to live that way anymore. And according to Scripture, what happens is suddenly your judgment is taken care of. It's gone. 